I don't like arbitrary rules that just don't seem to make sense. Things that, like, uh, you know, have you ever had something you go, well, that, that really doesn't apply here, but it, because they're applying it to everybody, they're, they're applying it to you, and it's just annoying. Do you ever have that problem? Well, I, I've just got to confess to you that I'm a little bit of a rebel, and, I, and there's a part of me that just doesn't like arbitrary rules. Now, what's really interesting about that is I probably have ruined my children in, in many, many ways. I, I've I think that's one of the reasons my, my son Pierce has such a strong sense of justice is he's seen his father be a rebel so, so much in his life that it's like, I'm going to make up for my father's mistakes. But it's, that, it's those rules. Does anybody else struggle with that sometimes? I, I was just noticing that um, I, I got a list of, of rules and laws that, that are on the books that some legislator had, had decided was an important thing to have. So in Juneau, Alaska... It is illegal for a flamingo owner to bring their pet into a barber shop. <laughs> There's an important law to keep in mind. Um, it's against the law to honk a car horn in a sandwich shop in Arkansas before, I mean, after 9 p.m. Now, this one's going to be interesting for you because this is Tennessee. It is illegal in the state of Tennessee to share your Netflix password with others. Yeah, now who else is kind of a rebel here, huh? <laughs> in Indiana, it's illegal to catch a fish with your bare hands. In Florida, it's illegal to sell your children. I guess you have to go on up to Georgia if you want to do that. <laughs> in Billings, Montana, it's illegal to... That noise you hear right now, listen. That is, that is the most wonderful grandchild in the world right there. <laughs> That is Cedar James Cofield back there that you just heard. He was, he would, let me translate that. You thought he was crying. He was saying, amen. <laughs> Y'all could learn from him. He is a gifted child. In Billings, Montana, it's illegal to own a pet rat. Bear wrestling is prohibited in Alabama. Oh, there's, there's something you need to really pay attention to. And last but not least, it's illegal to fall asleep in a cheese factory in South Dakota. So these are, these are rules you need to keep in mind as you live your life. Now, we're going to talk today about a rule that Jesus is beginning the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's going to give what some people have called the golden rule. And now this rule has been around about 2,000 years and we don't follow it at all. I don't even think we understand it. But Jesus, 2,000 years ago on a hillside, was teaching. And as the, as the sermon started to wind down, after he talked about how we should behave and what life should look like and who he was like, and he then shifts and, and says, therefore and gives this passage, what we now call, or often is called, the golden rule. And so this morning, we're going to spend time looking at just one verse. But it's an important enough verse that Jesus said all the law and the prophets are summarized in this verse. And so before we talk about him, before we look at his word, let's talk to him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, 
We are a rebellious group. Father, I'm a, a rebellious man in so many ways. As I come before your word this morning, I... I see a principle that is so difficult for me to, to believe and impossible for me without you to act upon. So, Father, would you transform us this morning? Father, we don't want this morning to just be a, some sort of spectator sport where we sit and watch and, and, and go through the motions. We want to be transformed this morning. We want to be changed by your word and how we need change. So, Father, since you know every person here, you know the people that don't know you yet. Oh, you know the, the young man or the young woman struggling with doubt. You know the couple that's tired. You know the people that fought on their way here this morning. You know every one of us in this room. And now would you change us, transform us, make us more like you as we think and listen to your word. Father, for the people in this room that are too comfortable, would you use this time to disrupt them? For the people that are disrupted, would you use this time to comfort them? And for all of us, use it to equip us for your great purposes and your glory. We pray this in the powerful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. If you can, uh, if you'd stand for the reading of God's word. Don't worry, you're not going to have to stand long. We're just going to look at one verse today together. And so it won't be long to take long for us to read it. The context, as I've told you, is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just talked about his nature. He's talked about the way that, that you can come to him and ask and seek and knock. And that just like people that can give who are selfish will give good gifts, how much more God will give good gifts to us. And then he gives us this passage. Seventh chapter of Matthew, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law of the prophets. May God bless the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. Now, it's really interesting about this golden rule is that other philosophers, other religions, other, I guess everything from psychologists to theologians have had a version similar to this. Uh, the, the, the rabbi Hillel said this, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to yourself. Socrates said, What stirs you to anger when done to you by others, do not do to others. Aristotle, he said, we should bear ourselves toward others as we would desire they should bear themselves toward us. Confucius, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. And we could go through lots of different philosophers and religions and you would get some some version of that. But Jesus has something very significant and different in the way he says this. Everything I just read to you is passive and negative. Don't do what you don't want done to you. 
It focuses on the negative, and it's passive. Jesus' statement is his statement about how we should behave is active, and it's positive. You think, well, that's just semantics. It doesn't matter. No. There's a difference between, say, well, just think driving your car. I won't do the thing. If it's a negative, I didn't, I didn't break any rules. I didn't break any rules. I didn't do anything wrong. But did I stop and help the person who needed help on the side of the road? Did I, did I let somebody in front of me? You see, when you think about only the minimums or you think about what the negative side of behavior, what didn't I do? I mean, that's, if you've ever, with your children, when you're parenting, when they're young, how often when they do something wrong, they go, well, I didn't do this. But they miss the, they miss the flavor of, of what, was it, what was it all about. Have you ever told your child, say you're sorry, and they go, I'm sorry. And you go, hmm, doesn't seem much like I'm sorry. It seems more like, well, I said it. I said it. I didn't do anything wrong. But Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't want to define our behavior by the negative or by the passive. He's inviting us to see relationships as dynamic. That there's something going on that we need to be aware of that is crucial. And so let's look at, uh, at this golden rule together and go through the passage. The first thing I want you to notice is it begins with the words, if, in, if you've got the NIV version, it'll say, therefore. The ESV version that we looked at together just now said, so whatever. And whenever you see the word therefore or so whatever, you, when you see the word therefore, you think, what's it there for? And what it's there for is it's making a reference to what was before. And as I told you, what's before is this is Jesus saying something about his nature and basically saying, this is, I am generous to you. So you can ask, you can seek, you can knock. You, selfish, can give good gifts to your children. Me, not being selfish, I will give good gifts to you. And so, the, so Jesus just made the point that he is, that God treats his children with incredible generosity that God treats his children with, with dignity and beauty and grace and truth. And because of that, therefore, therefore, I'm going to invite you to treat people the same way. It's not, I'm going to give you a rule that I don't follow. It's a, here's who I am, and because this is who I am with you, and I live in you as my children behave in such a way. It's kind of a fascinating way to see things. It's not, it's not the idea that, um, if, if, it's the idea that God would say that if you, get the, if you get the vertical relationship and you understand that, then the horizontal takes care of itself. If you understand what God did with you vertically to connect you to him, then the horizontal relationships will take care of themselves. I mean, that's, that's true. Why, why should a Christian forgive? Now, psychologists would tell you the reason you should forgive is because if you don't forgive, you'll become bitter. And they've done all sorts of research to show that that's true. 
And it is probably true that if you don't forgive, you'll become bitter. But why should a Christian forgive? Well, it's not because of what I'm going to get. I should forgive because I've been forgiven. See, if I understand the vertical, the horizontal takes care of itself. If I understand that I have been forgiven of more than I can possibly pay for, that the debt that has been paid on my behalf is more than ever I could afford. If I'm aware of how much he has paid my debt, then that will give me the ability to have grace with others. Remember Matthew 18, 18, when Jesus tells that parable in Matthew 18 where the rich, the, the, the king, a man comes before a king and owes all sorts of money. And he says, please have mercy on me. And the guy says, okay, I'll forgive your debt. And the guy said, goes out and goes, great. Then he sees somebody that owes him just a couple of bucks and he says, I want my money. And the guy doesn't give it to him, he throws him in jail. And then the king, when he hears that, goes back to the guy that he forgave and said, remember, didn't I, shouldn't you? See, the idea is, if I understand the work of Christ, if I understand who he is, and he lives in me, that frees me to live differently with you. It frees you to live differently with me. We don't have to base our relationship on, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. We don't have to base our relationship on, on how well you did. We don't, have to base, we don't have to keep score. I don't have to keep a ledger of, well, you did this, you did this, you did this, because, oh, I've been forgiven of much. So therefore, I can live with forgiveness toward you. I've been loved much, so I can love not based on you, but based on who he is in me. See, that's the beginning of this passage. The beginning of this passage, is, it's, not, it's not a golden rule unless you understand what gives you the power to even stumble toward this rule. What gives you the power to stumble toward this rule is you as a child of God have been forgiven much. You are loved by a God who has sacrificed and has thought of what your needs are. He did not give love the way it was easy for him to give. He gave love the way we needed to receive it. The cross teaches us that. And so what you find is you find in the beginning of this passage, therefore, we look back and see what that was about, and it's know the nature of the way God treated you. Based on that, now let's look at the principle of the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Hmm. You know, I spend a lot of my time saying things like, they weren't very nice to me. Or that person didn't respect me. Or why did that person pull in front of me? I spend a lot of my time thinking about how others have harmed me. I think about those deep things inside of me, the things, my longing for significance, my longing for security, my longing for love. I spent a lot of time wrestling with how I'm going to get my needs met. God would say, 
don't ignore those. Those are put there, there. But I didn't put there, I didn't put those longings in you for the sake of you. I didn't put the longings inside of you for the sake of you. I put those longings in you so that it would give you a, a window to how you can engage and love others. What a radical way to think about relationships. I mean, this would solve most marriage problems. And people come, come and see me for marriage counseling, and it's like, I don't think she wants me to come home. You know, and, and I go, I don't know if I'd want to come home to you. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a way. Um, I, I mean, th- th- so often, the very thing we, <coughs> we want others to do, we're not doing ourselves. I wish they'd treat me with a little more respect. Um, how are you doing respecting them? Hmm. So the first thing I would suggest to you is that if you're going to take this, this rule seriously, you've got you've to understand that God cares how you treat people. God cares how you treat, God is a relational God and he cares how you treat people. But how you treat other people matters to God. You can't be a good Christian and be a jerk. You can't. I know all my theology, but you're a jerk. And therefore your theology means nothing. Oh, oh, how did Paul say it? He said, it's just a clanging symbol. You see, theology for the sake of theology What does that mean? Theology ought to change the way that I engage other people. See, the invitation from a relational God is that if you know me and you have good theology, yes, it'll change the way you deal with me vertically because I've changed that, but it'll change the way you deal with people horizontally. So you should become curious. You should become curious about about what motivates other people. You, you know that we're, here's a fancy word for you, we're teleological beings. Say that to somebody later on today. When somebody says, how was church today? And just go, we were talking about the fact that we're teleological beings. And then just walk away. <laughs> and they'll go, I have no idea what that means. It's just a fancy theological way of saying that our behavior is moving us in a direction there's a reason we do what we do. We are, we are created in the image of a purposeful God. And since we're created in the image of a purposeful God, there's a, there's a reason I do what I do. And so there, that would invite you, if you weren't just thinking about yourself, to have, a, to have a curiosity about other people's behavior. There's a reason they're doing what they do. I, I mean, this is, this is the topic of Theology and psychology and sociology. I mean, the, the question is, why do people do what they do? You know, you get hints of that in Scripture when Jesus says, at the end of the day, he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. It seems like at the end of the day, what I really am long for is a sense of that my life has had an impact and that I'm loved. It seems like significance and security or impact and relationship or Love and work are the things that motivate us. Are curious about how you're, the people you relate to are trying to meet those needs? Psychologists will tell you that there's five basic motivators of all of our behavior. 
they say, are the desire to be accepted, the desire to belong to a group, be connected, the desire to have influence, the desire to not be harmed, and the desire to have a loving, intimate relationship are the five basic motivators that motivate everything we do in life. Either our desire for that or our fear that we won't get that will be what will motivate us. See, why do we bring any of that up? Well, because it's, if you're going to treat other people based on what you long for in your life, you've got to become aware of what it is you deeply long for. You're made for something more than just a boat or a new coat. You're made that there's a reason that you're distracted by a noble cause. You're made for more. You're an image bearer of God. And so it's important that you understand what sometimes is motivating somewhat shallow behaviors is something much, much deeper. And God invites you to look at that in yourselves, not for the sake of self. Oh, what a waste of our time if we spend our time thinking about self for the sake of self. No, he says, look at that in yourself so that you'll get a window into the people that you're called to love so that you can love them. So the first thing I want you to notice in this passage is notice that you're, notice that you're vertical will, with God that he takes care of will change your horizontal. Second thing I'd want you to notice from this is the fact that God cares deeply about how you relate to others. Third thing I'd want you to notice from this is you have, mo you have a choice in this moment. You can either <coughs> manipulate people to meet your needs or you can minister to people to meet theirs. Those are really your only two choices in every interaction you have. It's my choice right now in this moment. It's your choice when you, when you talk with your children, when you talk to your spouse, when you talk to your friends. I can either manipulate you to meet my needs or I can let you off the hook. I can kind of acknowledge you probably don't have the ability to meet my deepest needs. I don't think God, I don't think God intended a human being to meet your deepest needs. As a matter of fact, I know God didn't intend for a human being to meet your deepest needs. It was Larry Crabb who talked about this idea of do you minister to people or do you manipulate people? in your actions. See, that only makes sense when you give up on them meeting your deepest needs. When you let your spouse off the hook and say, it's not your job. My emotions are not your responsibility. It's not your job to make me happy. To tell you to take the pressure off your kids, it's not your job to make me proud. It's not your job to... See, God doesn't intend human beings to meet your needs. And if you're not careful, if you start treating people as if their job is to fix you and they treat you like their, your job is to fix them, you'll have two ticks and no dog. How's that working out for us? You got one person second from the other person who doesn't have the, the substance to give to the other and it's just... No wonder sometimes in our relationships we go, you know, this just isn't working out very well. Well, it's not working out because it wasn't made to work out that way. Another human being cannot meet your deepest needs. And so God invites you. He invites you in the golden rule to say, okay, what are those deep needs? What do you long for? What do you want? Are you aware of those? 
Now, other people can't do that for you, but I can. Won't completely till heaven, but on this side of heaven, I can at least touch those deep longings in you. And if you'll trust me for those things, it'll allow you to minister to others. Jeremiah 2 says, my people have committed two sins. They've given, they've turned their back on me, the source of living water, that's God speaking. And they've dug for themselves broken cisterns that don't hold water. Now notice, it does not say, my people have committed a sin, they're thirsty in the desert. The deep longings weren't the problem. The problem was, instead of going to God with those deep longings, they they turned their back and they figured out their own way to try to get their needs met. And what does it say? It says it's a broken cistern that doesn't really work. And you get that picture here. You get that picture here when he says, here's how I want you to treat other people because how you treat other people matters. I want you to give up on the fact that they're supposed to meet all your needs. Let them off the hook. Do you know what the pressure it feels like? Gosh, the pressure my kids have lived under make me, make me proud. The pressure your spouse lives under, it's up to you. What would it be like if we said, God, I'm letting them off the hook. They can't meet my deepest needs, but I can take those to you. Because I can take them to you and you live in me, I can begin to minister to them instead of manipulate. And if two people did that together in a relationship, what kind of relationship would that be? Oh, that would be two people, not me, you. Oh, no, no, not me, you. No, not me, you. No. Oh, that's different from compromise where nobody's happy. That's a commitment to eat from each person toward the other because they don't need to suck life out of the other. Instead, they want to try to give life to the other. Wow. What a radically different way to think about relationships because what God has done for you and because he lives in you, you are to... Be aware of what you long for and what you need. Give that to him. Release other people from that and then minister to them based on those needs. Wow. You want to be, you want more friends? First question you ought to ask is what kind of friend are you? You want people to treat you with more respect? You see, Jesus flips it. Jesus flips it. I want to be a victim. I want to live my life as a victim. I want it to be your fault. Everything in my life is your fault. I want to give a list of every disappointment I have that's your fault. I don't like the fact that nobody's sitting right there, and that's your fault. See, I want to live my life as a victim that blames everybody, and then I can justify everything I do. I can justify the fact I didn't say hello. I can justify the fact that I didn't 
I, I don't like the way they did that to me, and I'm justifying it because I am <laughs> I'm living life as if you're supposed to meet needs that God never intended for you to meet. Now that doesn't, what a radically different way to think about, to engage our spouses, our children, our friends, our bosses, the people that we run into at Ingalls, the people, I, I want to get a bumper sticker on my car that says, you know, I'm, I'm Buddhist or I go to First Baptist Concord because when I pull in front of people, I don't want them to recognize it's me that's driving, <laughs> that's driving so poorly. Uh, I want them to blame somebody else for my bad behavior. Listen, Jesus knew what he was talking about that day. We invited you and I to know who he is. And because you know who he is, and you know he lives inside you, then you can begin to stumble toward treating other people based on what they need, not just based on what you need. You see, biblical relationship is not transactional. That's a business relationship. A biblical relationship is sacrificial. Now, please don't misunderstand. I don't think the Bible teaches that you should be in abusive relationships. I don't think that the Bible teaches that you should let other people treat you like you're dirt. The Bible surely doesn't allow that. And this is not, this is not the passage that you should use that says so somebody, no matter how I treat you, you've got to treat me right. That's... The, the, the Bible doesn't, the Bible clearly wants people in the image of God to be treated with dignity and, and you don't get off of that. But in regular relationships, this is an invitation to see it radically different. So not only do I want you to know that if you get the vertical right, the horizontal comes. Not only do I want you to know that God cares about how we treat others. Not only do I want you to know that you have a choice to minister or to manipulate in life. Lastly, I think this passage will take you to a place where you realize you need a savior. There's a reason this, is, this principle has been around a long, long time and we don't follow it because you and I aren't capable of following it. The Sermon on the Mount is not an instruction booklet on how to get to heaven. Because your goodness, your behavior is not what's going to get you to heaven. It's the work of Christ that gets you to heaven. It's an invitation to live differently on your path that he's placed you on as you go to heaven. Because it's by his work you're going there, not yours. But when I think deeply about the golden rule, when I think about what it's like to look at my children my wife, my friends, my colleagues, strangers, based on their needs instead of mine, I'm left 
woefully short of that. And so the last thing I would suggest that understanding of the golden rule will leave you with is an incredible sense of appreciation and longing for a savior that takes care of business. So, The vertical, a right understanding of the vertical will help you with the horizontal. Know that God is a relational God and he wants your relationships and the way you relate to others matters to him. Notice in this text that you have a choice to manipulate or to minister. And lastly, notice this text takes you under your knees before God and say, oh Lord, I need a savior where I can't do this outside of you in me and out of your power.